This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> On today's Making Contact, we're going to take a look at the only national seashore on the West Coast. This is a place that's been described as a paradigm of coastal California beauty, Point Reyes National Seashore. A few years ago, the National Park Service reviewed its general management plan for the first time in nearly three decades, and that sparked a fierce debate around the plight of the Thule elk. Environmentalists said the elk were dying because they were fenced in to protect cattle ranches inside the park. And that has opened up an important conversation about the indigenous history of this land and where it's headed. So we'll spend most of our time today with a story that first aired on KPFA in 2021. Just a quick heads up that this story has some brief descriptions of abuses under Spanish colonization. Here's reporter Sam Anderson. Are those the Thule elk out there? Oh, wow. There they are. Got to see some. I don't think we should go, go any closer, really. No. No, we should stay right here. I'm standing on a grassy bluff at Tamales Point in Point Reyes National Seashore. It's a sunny July day, and I can see the waves of the Pacific Ocean from where I'm standing. I'm at the northernmost edge of Point Reyes, which is a triangular-shaped peninsula that juts out from the northern coast of California, about 40 miles north of San Francisco. It's run by the National Park Service. This is one of the most popular tourist destinations in the area. Winding roads, dramatic sweeping beaches, and wild animals like elephant seals, bobcats, and the famous Thule elk. Today, I'm here with investigative journalist Peter Byrne and Teresa Harlan, an indigenous woman adopted by a Coast Miwok family who are descended from the original inhabitants of this land. And we've just spotted a herd of Thule elk. I'm watching the fog roll gently across the landscape and there are these rolling hills dotted with wildflowers and different types of grasses and brush and... 12 elk in the distance, grazing. And right beyond them is the Pacific Ocean. If you've never seen them before, Thule elk are majestic. They're tall and slender with tawny brown fur and a big ruff of darker brown fur on their chest. The males can have antlers that can grow up to four feet tall. Thule elk are a federally protected species. They were at the brink of extinction by the end of the 19th century but were reintroduced here at Tamales Point, which the state of California declared an elk preserve in 1970. But the elk here today aren't free to roam like their ancestors did. So these are the eight-foot-tall elk fences. Oh, wow. Teresa and Peter have brought me to the edge of the elk preserve, which is separated by a fence. Can you describe this fence for me? It's a wire, metal fence that's eight feet tall on big posts. And it, does it run the whole width of the peninsula? Three miles across from, from the bay to the ocean, yes. Can't get around it. 
the fence cuts the tip of Tomas Point off completely from the rest of Point Reyes. From the 10 elk that the state reintroduced to Tomas Point, the herd has grown to hundreds. But now, the tule elk in the preserve are dying of thirst and starvation. Why is this fence here in the first place? Why does it cut off the tule elk herd at Tomas Point from the rest of the peninsula? And why did the National Park Service build it? The answer lies with another four-legged animal on this peninsula. The cows. At any given time, there's several thousand of them roaming the pastures across Point Reyes. They're here to supply the 24 beef and dairy ranches that operate in the national park. The land is owned by the federal government, and the Park Service issues reservations or special use permits to the ranchers. About a quarter of the park is used for active ranching. The fence effectively separates the tule elk from competing with the cows for food and water. And as a result, it benefits the ranching operations in the park. You might be surprised to hear there's cattle ranching happening in a national park. It's a complicated arrangement and not a very common one. Point Reyes is one of just a handful of national parks that allow for-profit cattle ranching on their land. To better understand the situation, we have to take a step back in history. Ranching on Point Reyes was established well before the creation of the national park. Here's rancher Ted McIsaac. Uh, my family settled here in 1866. 1866, wow, that was a, so yeah, a long time ago, huh? A couple of years ago, yeah. <laughs> Point Reyes National Seashore was established by Congress in 1962, nearly a century after Ted's family started ranching. Well, you know, it's almost 50 years ago since the park was developed. And back then when they wanted to, wanted to convert into a park, the ranchers were not, uh, were not really favorable for it, but they sat down and made an agreement with the government that if, if we sell our land to the government, we want the right to be able to continue ranching on our own, own ranches. Basically, that's how it got done. Congress purchased all the lands and waters in Point Reyes from private owners for $57 million. Later on, the National Park acquired more land to form the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, including the McIsaac Ranch, in 1983. And uh, how much did the park pay for your land? Um, it was about $2 million. Oh, wow. That's a good chunk of money. Yeah. $2 million in 1983 is the equivalent of about $5.5 million today. Other ranchers received similar buyouts. Today, Ted McIsaac and his family continue to raise beef cattle on their ranch, and they pay a fee to the National Park Service to use the land. He wouldn't tell me exactly how much, but said that it's less than market rate rent. Ted says his operation today runs pretty slim. He has a permit to run 190 cattle, but is currently only keeping 140 because of the drought. Before ranching arrived, Point Reyes was an intricate coastal prairie and was home to the Coast Miwok peoples, who lived on this land for thousands of years before the arrival of the first Europeans. They called this peninsula Tamalhuye. To find out more about the indigenous history of this land, I called up a member of the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin, which is not a federally recognized tribe. Opentoish, good morning. Uh, my name is Joseph Sanchez. I'm a Coast Miwok descendant from a separate band called the Kukuipo. That's basically from the Nicasio area. 
my family actually resided in Tomales Bay. That was large village of Coast Miwok Indians right there at Marshall Marconi area, the shore of Tomales Bay. And uh, yeah, we were there for thousands and thousands of years. That is, until the Europeans arrived. Fast forwarding to the mid-1700s, Spanish colonizers created the mission system, a series of outposts across the coast of California, including Mission San Rafael in Marin. The native peoples of California, including the Coast Miwok, were forced to assimilate and coerced into slave labor for the missions. Spanish missionaries aimed to stamp out indigenous culture and history. The missionaries saw them as less than human. Joe Sanchez reads me a passage from the book A Cross of Thorns by historian Elias Castillo, writing about Junipero Serra, the priest who was in charge of the missions at that time. Serra wrote, quote, In the midst of all our little troubles, the spiritual side of the missions is developing most happily. In Mission San Antonio, there are simultaneously two harvests at one time, one for wheat and of a plague among the children who are dying. Now that says a lot to me. Whoa, wait, so just to pause there, there's two harvests, one for wheat and one of a plague. Why would he call that a harvest? Because they were baptized and those children are going to heaven. Whoa. Very dark. But that's Sarah, who is a saint. In fact, the population of Native peoples living in the missions declined from 87,000 to 4,000 in just over 30 years. Sarah was declared a saint by the Catholic Church in 2015. Yet, during his life, he actively encouraged the brutalization and dehumanization of the Native peoples in California. Statues of him were erected and then toppled in recent years by anti-racist activists. The abuses that took place during the mission period happened all along the coast, including right here in Marin County. And this history is the backdrop to ranching on Point Reyes, because it was the Spanish mission at San Rafael and the friars who managed it who introduced cattle to the peninsula for the very first time in the early 1800s. As California became part of the United States, conditions for indigenous people only got worse. The mid-1800s, a time when the Point Reyes dairy industry was booming, was one of the darkest chapters yet for Native Americans. In California, private militias were formed to hunt and exterminate entire indigenous villages. These militias were then paid by the California government. The monies they received for doing so was more than the money they would make doing their normal labor or whatever it was they were involved in. Mm -hmm. So murder became a profitable industry. Exactly. You could rape the mother, sell the children to slavery, kill the father, and collect a reward. The public land that Point Reyes National Seashore sits on is the ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok. It is land that was taken by the Spanish, then claimed by ranchers. And it lies now in a state that publicly funded the extermination of Native peoples. But in the face of all this overwhelming violence, the Coast Miwok and indigenous peoples from many other tribes in California continue to survive. While enduring much hardship at the hands of the invaders, our tribe, the Coast Miwok, have endured and still practice the ways and customs of our ancestors. We have survived and still practice those meaningful customs in our everyday lives. 
We're jumping in to remind you that you are listening to Making Contact. If you like today's show and you want more information, or if you'd like to leave us a comment, visit us at radioproject.org. There you can access today's show and all of our prior episodes. Okay, now back to the show. To bring things back full circle, the rise of ranching at Point Reyes happened at the same time the settlers were hunting the tule elk to near extinction. Native people, our cosmologies and our epistemologies are about how we are related to the elk. This is Teresa Harlan, who we heard at the beginning of the story. Teresa's adopted mother is Kos Miwak. Her ancestors are the original inhabitants of Point Reyes, and they have traditionally had a close relationship with the tule elk. We're related to all animals, plants, and things. So these elk are our relatives. Me as a Native person, I have to say that they are my relatives out there. And that's one of my concerns for the elk out here, is that (laughs) they're brought here, and yet um, they cannot move about to have a healthy environment or foods, and they cannot live a sustainable life. For Teresa, the elk represent her family's roots in this place, roots that continue to bring her back to Point Reyes. Her mother's family home is on Laird's Landing, or as she calls it, Felix Cove. I met Teresa at the park to visit her ancestral home. The path to the cove winds down from a grassy hilltop. As we walk, the landscape becomes greener. The trees grow taller and the branches extend over our heads, enveloping us into the forest. The Coast Miwok may have walked this same path for centuries, or even millennia. So all of this was occupied. Marshall Beach, Laird's Landing that we're calling Felix Cove, um, all of that. All of this whole area, just everywhere we've been today, (laughs) you know. Right. The people have walked, lived their lives, hunted, fished, played, sang, mourned shared meals, lived their lives. Mm-hmm. When I walked down this road, I always think about my mom. This is her little play yard, her walk to school, or walk home, or, you know, if they wanted to go out and do other things like berry picking, this is likely the road she took. Teresa says her ancestors returned here in the early 1800s after surviving the displacement of the mission system. So it goes way, way, way back before ranchers, sometime after Spanish missions. And so this is their home. Now we're getting under the trees. There's ferns are bigger, more flowers, and um, oak trees and bay trees. So if you look to your right, you're going to see the buildings. Oh, there it is. And so you see the house. You see a little cabin behind the house, and now you can see the shed under the trees. Tucked away under the oak and eucalyptus trees is a small house made from wooden planks with just two rooms and a front porch. Beyond the house is Tamales Bay. The waves gently lap against the shore, and you can see the town of Marshall across the bay where Teresa's mom was born. Straight ahead of us is where my family would have had their bean and potato fields. 
and then my grandpa would till this area here and um, plant the vegetable garden, you know, tomatoes and string beans. And then he had a, he built a little barn that no longer exists in a little corral, and that's where the dairy cow. And they keep a hog once in a while for meat. And then there was chickens, ducks running around, chicken coops. So all of this that you see would have been tended. All of this would have been managed. Today, the cove is overgrown and wild. The house is still standing, though the inside is dilapidated. There's graffiti written on one of the walls. A shed nearby is falling apart. Teresa reminisces about what life would have been like for her mom and grandparents here. So what you would see is a porch steps that are not here. You would see a laundry line. You might find my grandmother sitting on the porch processing some vegetables from the garden or maybe cleaning oysters. Um, you would see the corral and the, and the milk cow over here. You'd see my grandfather walking around maybe repairing or fixing something. So the house would be filled with voices and, and people laughing and talking. After surviving the mission system and the displacement and genocide of the 19th century, Teresa's family returned to live out their lives at the cove. But unfortunately, they would once more be forced off the land. Well, my grandmother, Bertha, she died in 1949. And at the time, Kay Ranch was owned by Turney and Lundgrens. And shortly, a few years after my grandmother died, my uncle Vic, who lived here with my grandfather, they were served eviction papers. Those eviction papers were served by Sales Turney and James Lundgren two successful dairy farmers who claimed to own the land. Teresa's uncle, Victor Sousa, was the last Coast Miwok person to live on the 12-acre site of K Ranch, which included the land where Teresa's ancestors built their home. Victor brought the matter to court. If he could prove his family had lived on that property since the 1800s, he could make a successful squatter's rights claim to keep the land. The ties to the family go back to the early 1800s. And so he had oral testimony at the time. The district attorney for Marin County, William Wysick, took the case as a, a pro bono case and represented my uncle. And he did a lot of research and collected oral testimony that our family lived here when San Francisco was known as Yerba Buena and a forest. In fact, the Turney versus Sousa case was fought all the way up to the California Supreme Court. But the odds were stacked against Victor from the start. So, um, unfortunately, oral testimony um, wasn't allowed and considered inadmissible. Um, my uncle did not have a record of tax payments or tax records. And William Wysick was quoted as saying, everyone in court knew the family lived there prior to the 1870s, but they could not meet the requirements of law, Western law, paper law. And I mean, this case of Native families losing land over lack of tax records is a common story all over the United States because everything came around them, yeah. you know. So people who've lived here continuously 
are not going to have deeds and tax records. Victor Sousa lost the lawsuit and the cove. It makes me sad when I think about how my uncle lost his court fight. It makes me sad about what we lost or what was taken from us. But it also makes me devoted to getting the attention needed so that this place isn't demolished, this place isn't vandalized. It has the same value as all the other treasured family homes, um, but it's not. It's been neglected since my family left. Today, K Ranch, including Teresa's family homestead, is historically recognized by the Park Service and protected from new development. And the Park Service recently repaired the exterior of the house. But there's no signage indicating that it was a Kosmiwak home or how it was lost. And Teresa is fighting for her family's history to be part of the official narrative of the National Park. Yeah, this was home. Um, so it is why I'm working so hard to try to get the park and everyone to hold it as dearly as I do and appreciate the historic significance of it as a Kosmiwak built structure. I would want to know this history. National Park Service spokesperson Melanie Gunn says they have plans to highlight Teresa's family story as part of efforts to preserve indigenous cultural history. She says the Park Service is actively talking with Teresa's family and that the park is also required to consult with the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, a federally recognized tribe of Coast Miwok and Pomo people. Teresa Harlan and Joe Sanchez, who we heard from earlier, are not members of this tribe. There was a very specific decision made by the park's archaeologists and cultural resources lead that those buildings, the Teresa Harlan's family buildings, are really significant because of the overlapping time of when they were occupied by Coast Miwok, kind of in the beginning of Spanish ranching, and then once it became a state and that transition. So we want to tell that story and we'll work with the tribe to do that in the best way possible. That acknowledgement comes 70 years after Teresa's family lost this land, when the California Supreme Court upheld their eviction. When I began reporting this story, I wanted to find out who gets to control the land at Point Reyes, who gets to profit, and at what cost does that profit come to the environment? This story started with the Tule Elk, but it's about so much more than that. At its core, the story of Point Reyes is about how the forces of colonialism and the violence of indigenous displacement continue to shape the state of California today, 500 years after settlers came to this land for the first time. It's also about who gets to control the narrative of that history. Wherever there is a fight over the use of public land in this country, that fight has its roots in colonialism. Because before public land became public, there were people who lived on this land. Even after the horrors of genocide and displacement, indigenous peoples are still here, fighting for the chance to shape the future of the same land that was taken from them generations ago. That was reporter Sam Anderson with an excerpt from the series Whose Point Raise, which first aired in 2021 on KPFA.
I had the opportunity to talk to Teresa Harlan from Sam's Story recently. She's now the executive director and founder of the Alliance for Felix Cove. We're a nonprofit organization that's all Indigenous women-led, and we are working to rematriate my mom's family's ancestral Kosmiwa Tamoko homes at Point Reyes National Seashore. Um, has the National Park Service like installed a plaque or anything for Felix Cove yet? No, there's a mock-up of a wayside in which I've provided uh, family photographs of our family at Felix Cove, but it hasn't been finalized. It's It's been sitting for a few years. It needs to be installed because we have vandalism events. And so people don't realize what they're, if, what they see because the, the house is, um, you can see it from the bay or you can hike down to the house and people don't know what they're looking at. You know, our purpose is to save the house my mom grew up in, which is the last surviving house and structure that was built by Kosmiwak Hands. And without um, our work and our call for its protection and our work to rematriate it, it could easily decay or park policy is to demolition. In fact, the National Park Service tried to demolish it um, in prior years, but I have the um, assurance from the current superintendent that he will not allow the demolition of the house. So the public comment period recently closed for a proposal to remove the fence that fenced out the Thule elk. Is there anything that you would like to see happen regarding the fence? Well, absolutely. I'd love to see the fence taken down. The Thule elk who are our relatives, suffer out there. They were never meant to be penned in. I think there seems to be a trend now in which national parks are turning around and facing that history in their way, reaching out um, to indigenous communities and for governmental agencies to do something like that. That is an incredible shift, but it's built from community action it's built from the stories um, being shared. So it's it's years and years and years of work um, that other that folks have been doing uh, way before I came on that are have led and contributed to this place that we're at now where the Tulio um, hopefully will be released from confinement. Can you speak about why? Like this issue, these issues around the rematriation of Felix Cove, um, especially in the context of your family's history there, and also like shifting the narrative around, um, you know, whose history gets to be told when we talk about these lands. Can you talk about like why these are important? Absolutely. Um, you know, this work is important because one, um, first and foremost, it provides a way that gives recognition and significance to my mother's life, the life of her lives of her ancestors, that they existed, that they were actually, you know, <laughs> that they came from a long line of people who lived uh, sustainably and lived in relationship with the land, water, plants, and animals. And that 
they made it all the way through three waves of colonization from the Spanish missions to the Mexican ranchos and the American ranches. And they carved out a life for themselves in their ancestral homelands. My mother would always say they were pocketbook poor, but rich with food. You know, they could, if they wanted fish, they would just go out and fish. There was deer, um, abalone, uh, oysters and clams, and, you know, abundance. And that also there was just an extreme injustice that occurred at Point Reyes, meaning that Coast Miwok Talmoko people were driven off their homelands. At first, they're driven to the edges of the margins of their homelands. And then, you know, at the whim of a colonial settler rancher, you know, they're expelled. It's important for folks to know the real history um, and not just a carve out. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today on Making Contact. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. And that does it for today's show. I'm Lucy Kang. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.